From body image pressures to social media likes, sometimes it can feel like the world is full of noise. And that's exactly why we've got to start talking out loud. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host today, Mercer, a health journalist and eating disorder survivor. I'm glad you're here. Hi guys, welcome back to Talking Out Loud, the podcast that's all about helping you find your voice and navigating body image issues. I'm your host, Janae Mercer, and today we're joined by Karina Kazan, a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, director of the Eating Disorder Program at the American Center, and vice president of the Middle Eastern Eating Disorder Association. Karine, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be on your podcast today. Thank you. Great. I mean, just let's let's kick off with the big question. We have seen a growth of body image issues across teens and adults since COVID started. Can you talk to me about like why that happened and what's going on there? Yes, sure. So I, I guess there are two, uh, two main reasons. First, we need to remember that eating disorders and obsessions over bodies are a coping mechanism. So when we're not well, we have a tendency uh, to to resort to those kinds of if you have suffered with an eating problem or have had in the past body image issues. Uh, in times of stress, you are going to go back to resort back to those coping mechanisms that are clearly unhelpful and destructive. But it's kind of easier to obsess on your body rather than on the uncertainty of life, what's going to happen next, when is this going to end. Um, people are more isolated, have more time on their hands to scrutinize their bodies. They're on their own at home most of the time. They're working from home. So there's more, more time uh, to think about those issues. Restricting eating or overeating during those times is also normal. As we said, there are coping mechanisms. So basically, you're stressed and you haven't learned to cope with your emotions with healthier ways. So you go back to um, your old ways or you you do more of those unhealthy mechanisms. So you start to restrict your eating. It gives you a false sense of control. It gives you a sense of familiarity, of security. And uh, you continue doing it uh, or you indulge in food and then you go into the cycle after of restriction to compensate, which makes you, you know, overeat again. So I would say stress, isolation and for sure increased screen time because one of the major driver of uh, uh, body image issues is the comparison and uh, the comparison nowadays is happening via social media. So when you increase your, sc- your screen time, you're going to automatically spend more time comparing yourself to other people. Those images, as you know, you're better equipped than me to know are completely faked and manipulated, but still the comparison occur- occurs and this will also heighten uh, heighten body image issues and as a result the need to restrict that's so interesting because I know one of the things that really horrified me at the start of COVID and it, it keeps popping up is this trend of memes around like COVID weight gain yeah. and the idea it's you know, a side-by-side picture and the first one is like a very thin body and then the next one is a, a larger body or a larger face and it's like, oh, haha, this is me with the COVID-15, like a, like a big joke. Yes, absolutely. This has been super triggering for, uh, for many, many people. Very, very triggering. Well, yeah, it, it, it's, I think it just horrifies me that we are in a global pandemic 
And for some reason, some reason, and maybe maybe you have some idea about why this is, but it seems the obsession, instead of really being about the global pandemic for so much of the internet, the obsession became about female bodies. Yeah, so rationally, one would think that with such a, you know, global crisis happening worldwide, one would take a step back and put things into perspective and uh, important things would matter more, like being healthy, having your family, being safe and sound, uh, you know, being surrounded with people. This should be the things that you should be starting to appreciate maybe before you took them for granted. And one would, you know, one would like to think that such a huge crisis would make you appreciate those things. But in reality, it did not happen. What happened is that, again, as a, as a coping mechanism, you have to understand from a psychological point of view, one obsession always hides another obsession. It is easier to obsess on your body weight than to obsess on um, on, on, you know, the well-being of the world, what is going to happen, are we going to get out of it, is there going to be a vaccine, are we going to find a solution, it is easier. So people, uh, you know, go back to, to obsessing on those things. It's a convenient distraction. They don't have to think about the bigger problems. But yes, one would think that this is a time of uh, reflection and taking a step back and helping, you know, get the bigger picture. But I, I didn't see that happen very often. Most of the time, people starting obsessing. So whether it is on body image for people who have body image issues or other obsessions, but uh, it's a time of uh, heightened obsessiveness on other things. An obsession always hides another one. Yeah, that's I, I think that's so true. I know for me, when it all kicked off, and even throughout, like there were periods where I found myself like leaning a bit more in that direction. And as someone who has recovered, those are always like triggers I watch for and, and I'm very aware of. But I can see how it's really easy to, to just like slide back into that safe space. Yes, because on one hand, as you said, it, uh, it's familiar and it gives, unfortunately, uh, a sense of false security and control. Plus, you have all the memes and all the, the messages that you're bombarded with on social media. Plus, you have the whole, you know, medical community saying, you know, if when you are confined, don't forget to move. Otherwise, you are going to gain weight. So, so even professionals, unfortunately, who are supposed to you know, care for our, um, I mean, they're right to a certain extent, but the message uh, is um, can be wrongly interpreted. So people started, started over-exercising uh, during confinement and, uh, and watching what they were eating because also this was a message from the healthcare community because you're not moving enough, because you're confined in your home, you have to find ways to stay active. And what happens is that people who have exercise addiction, it got worse. People who have histories of eating disorders got triggered. People who are recovering from an eating disorder and should not be exercising and should be increasing their food intake, you know, found themselves being conflicted with those conflicting messages. So this was also detrimental. I, we have to think of other ways to, to convey those messages because the, the ways it was conveyed were harmful and detrimental. That's really interesting. What would you, if, if someone, if one of the listeners here maybe was struggling with their own body image issues during this time or found themselves creeping into an unhealthy direction or obsessing over food or binging, 
Like, what kind of advice would you give them? I think the first uh, the first step is to be aware. So, if someone, uh, the first advice I would give to our listeners is, if someone is noticing a change in your behavior or increased anxiety around food or other, you know, um, related uh, symptoms or changed behaviors like being more irritable around food, uh, being more anxious about exercising or not exercising. Uh, you know, usually people reinforce those behaviors, uh, positively reinforce them. So if someone is commenting on them in a negative way, then clearly there's a problem. And, you know, part of eating disorders is that they are insidious, uh, unfortunately, at the beginning, positively reinforced by society. And then, um, uh, you know, uh, there is a big part of denial in them. So I think the first step is to listen. If someone in our body-obsessed and uh, healthy eating-obsessed society is commenting on your eating and exercising habits, that definitely means there's a problem. That's the first step, acknowledging that there's a problem, which is difficult most of the time. And then I think the second step is to, you know, uh, reflect on ever since you've started this, let's say, health cake or uh, you know, um, eating uh, healthily or exercising more. Did you really genuinely feel better? Isn't your mood lower? Uh, don't you find that you have less energy? Don't you find that you're more irritated by people? Don't you find that you have developed some kind of weird rules? Don't you find that you're sleeping, uh, you know, you're, you're sleeping is impaired? Really do a, a genuine reflection because uh, these disorders are egocentric. So at the beginning, uh, they, they make you feel better. But soon enough, you know, you're going to go into the the hell of starvation, semi-starvation, and all the symptoms that come with it, load, lowered mood, anxiety, irritability, impaired cognition, you know, the difficulty to concentrate. So ask yourself, are you really feeling better? Are you really genuinely feeling better? And has your body image improved? Because most of the time, the body image worsens. That's the weird thing, you know? So, you know, and I'm talking about severe cases, even with severe cases, if you ask a, a very low weight young girl um, that has now gained, let's say, 10 kilos, how she feels in her body now versus then, she will tell you that she feels much better now because part of being starved, uh, you know, impairs your perception. And at the time, because you are starved, you, you develop those rituals that are extremely severe when you're very starved and at very low weight of body checking constantly, measuring, pinching, you know, all this stuff which worsens the body image. So one of the messages I want to say, I mean, I want to bring out there is that losing weight is not a solution for uh, body image issues. Losing weight in general increases body image issues, weirdly. So the solution... Yeah, is to work on the behaviors that are perpetuating this body image dissatisfaction, all the checking, all the comparing, all the, you know, uh, all this, this time and energy spent scrutinizing and, and uh, trying clothes and looking in front of the mirror. All of that makes, creates a body image issue. So it's not, weight loss is never the solution to improve your relationship with your body, never. That's really, that's really powerful. I know when I, when I was, you know, at my sickest and my thinnest, I would say I felt the worst about myself that I've ever yes, felt. Yes. Like, like you think losing all this weight will make everything better, but it just, 
it just became this really bad and very upsetting spiral. Yes, at the beginning, it makes it better. So at the beginning, you feel a sense of achievement, plus it's positively reinforced by our surroundings and our, and our environment. Uh, everyone compliments weight loss. Unfortunately, I think this is the biggest problem we're facing, even though you know weight loss in reality is never positive. Weight loss is either the sign that you are struggling with an eating problem or that you are clinically depressed or that you're struggling with a severe anxiety disorder, or that you have some kind of cancer or chronic illness. So it's completely counterintuitive to compliment someone on weight loss. Uh, but unfortunately, that's the situation. So people compliment, so it gives you a sense of satisfaction and a sense of achievement. You feel that you've achieved something, something meaningful and important. But then, you know, uh, straight after that, uh, you have to, re because your body check enough to see fatness despite your extremely low weight, you know, when you want to see fatness, you will see fatness, even if you are at a BMI 12. And I have had, you know, patients at BMI 12 who genuinely saw fatness because when you want to see something, you will see it. And then you reset the standard and you feel, oh my God, uh, you know, um, I need to lose more weight in order to feel better. And that's why anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders because, you know, you can never stop. You're always in the quest of this honeymoon period, where the first time that you lost a bit of weight and people complimented you and you felt better uh, in your body. But this lasts, you know, maximum a couple of weeks. And then you have to go for, you, you have to reset the standard and lose more weight because you feel unwell again. You have body, your body image gets worse and you need to lose more weight and it can never stop. And now I want, you've mentioned a few times about this idea of the approval and feeling good and other people like reflecting back to us and we feel really good. And I know a lot of the women in my community really struggle to find their voice. Like even I struggled for years to know, you know, to stand up for myself and speak for myself. And I just wanted people to like me. Do you find, is that, are those personality traits like yes. something people who struggle with body image issues, do they, do they have those? Yes, they have two things. They have low self-esteem and usually they have perfectionism. That's clinical perfectionism, so not the positive perfectionism that can make you accomplish and do good things. The, the clinical perfectionism that's always, you know, looking out for what's, you know, not perfect constantly and is never satisfied. And the clinical perfectionism comes from, from, stems from low self-esteem. People who need to be perfect all the time are people who, who fear that if they're not perfect are, go, are not good enough and are going to lose the love and the validation of people. There's this constant quest to be perfect all the time because you have the fear of losing people's approval. And the, the need of people's approval comes from the sense that you're not good enough as you are to have other people's love and, and approval. So you need to always be perfect to get that. So both are linked in a way. And how can someone, if, if a listener does struggle with this kind of extreme perfectionism and low self-esteem, like what do you do to fix it? I mean, therapy, I would say, you know, when it gets to that, uh, to that extent, you know, positive psychology has lots of, uh, of good tools, Martin Seligman, Flourish. There's a lot of things, you know, positive affirmations, uh, uh, mindfulness, uh, gratitude work, uh, self-compassionate work. But uh, if, if the issue is uh, severe and if the issue is chronic and if the issue 
sometimes is linked to childhood traumas. They don't have to be traumas per se. In trauma, we have the big T, like the, the big traumas, the ones that are visible. And then you have the small T's that are as, as detrimental but are not visible. So basically, um, childhood neglect or uh, being, you know, um, uh, a kind of uh, teased or bullied at school, and most importantly, being uh, bullied at home. Uh, the first, the first stigma and the first bullying, unfortunately, happens at home. And parents, by you know, w- while wanting the best for their children, think that. You know, if they shame them or if they um, humiliate them, they will motivate them to change their behavior. But in reality, uh, research has shown it does exactly the opposite effect. So stigma doesn't motivate anyone to change, uh, whether, you know, any kind of stigma. So uh, a lot of uh, those people have had in their childhood, if not a huge trauma, as in something that you can see, but have had multiple small teeth, multiple small traumas, uh, neglect, you know, having the sense that they're not good enough for their parents. It starts there. And then, you know, you, you grow up feeling that you're not a good enough adult and that you need to, uh, you're not a good enough teen first and then not a good enough adult. And then you need to constantly do more to, um, to have other people's love and approval. So I see this extremely, it, it, it's, it's very common and it's, uh, I mean, it's documented. Um, a lot happened in childhood, but that doesn't mean that it's not things that you can work on. And um, what we do in psychotherapy, so either you can treat the trauma uh, per se, even though it's a small trauma, it's treatable. So I, I, I use EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, which is a very powerful trauma tool. And, uh, and there's a lot of work on self-efficacy and self-compassion that we do in therapy to basically, you know, restore uh, the self-esteem or at least improve it, if not restore it. It sounds incredible. And I mean, on that note, like, I know from speaking to you before, like, you were doing amazing stuff here in the Middle East. Will you Thank talk you. to me a bit about that? Like, like you, you said there are no inpatient centers, so you work with the only outpatient center. Like, will you tell me about that? Yes. So basically, um, in the Middle East, there is no uh, residential treatment center for eating disorders that are specialized in eating disorders. There are no psychiatric or even, you know, pediatric wards that have a team that is trained in the treatment of eating disorders. And very few practitioners around the region are trained in evidence-based treatment. The biggest misconception is to think that any any psychologist or any dietitian can treat eating disorders. Eating disorders require a very specific training that you do not get in university. If you do psychology school, a standard clinical psychology school, you'll have a couple of hours of eating disorders. So it's not enough um, to train you to be able to treat eating disorders. They have very specific therapies that are that are um, that have been developed for their treatment. You have CBTE, you have Mantra, you have SSM, you have FBT. So you have specific therapies. And uh, and very few practitioners in our region are trained to deliver those treatments. So on one hand, you have lack of awareness and you have lack, you know, there's a huge stigma around food issues in our part of the world, uh, specifically for men, even more than for women. 
And then let's say the sufferer or the parents, you know, can notice some signs and identify some signs. Then, you know, they take them and they have lots of goodwill. They take them to a general, I'm going to call a general clinical psychologist who cannot treat uh, such disorders because they're not trained. Most of them are not trained. So, um, so MIDA, uh, the association, one of its aim is to train more practitioners around the region to be able to deliver evidence-based treatment. This is, this is one of our goals. Another one of our goals is to raise awareness against dieting, because as you know, all eating disorders start with a diet, and if it doesn't, you know, you will develop at, at, uh, at best a disordered relationship with food and your body, and diets don't work. You know, if you don't develop an eating disorder, you will end up regaining the weight and more uh, with time. And all studies show it. There is no study that shows that diet, weight loss diets are uh, efficient. So we need to, so th this is one of our aims as well. To We go to schools, universities, and, and we speak to students to um, about the risks of dieting, uh, because this is where you can do prevention. We're in touch also with the big corporations like Instagram and TikTok to try to help uh, modify the content or the policies regarding, uh, you know, pro-anorexic content because this is very triggering as well. So, um, so yeah, we work on awareness, prevention, and uh, treatment. As in, we we aim to, to 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 train many practitioners, and we have on our website many many resources. Uh, that are dedicated to either professionals who would like to learn more about eating disorder treatment and uh, families, carers, or sufferers um, to learn more about their disorder. And we have many self-help books that can also be helpful in certain cases. And we offer 15, 15 minutes of free consultation with an eating disorder expert. So if anyone needs um, a short you know, conversation with an expert, they can send an email to info at mida.me and someone will get back to them and set up a, a telecommunication, 15 minutes of, 15, 20 minutes of a consultation to help the, to help direct the sufferer. Amazing. Amazing. And the website is just mida.com? No, it's mida.me. 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 Perfect. Fantastic. Well, I will, all of this will be down in the description below. Okay, great. Guys, I'm aware of time and Kareen has an incredibly busy day, but I just wanted to say thank you so, so, so much for joining us. Thank you. I am very grateful uh, and, and thank you for supporting our cause and thank you for inviting me. And I'm always happy to collaborate, you know, uh, anytime uh, you have any project. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> well, well, before before we go off, I'll just say, um, Guys, make sure you join us next week for another episode. Thank you for joining Talking Out Loud, the podcast that's all about helping you find your voice. Kareen, one thing before you sign off, what is your favorite uplifting quote? What is my favorite uplifting quote? Wow, that's a tough one. There is so many. <laughs> um, wow, it's okay not to be okay, I think. That's beautiful and because very it, relevant. Because there's a lot of, uh, you know, you, you get even worse when you feel that, you're, that you shouldn't, not, you shouldn't fe be feeling down. So when you give yourself permission to feel down, then you can start going up and, uh, and start your journey. So it's okay not to be okay. I love that. That's beautiful. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much. And we will see you again next time. Thank week. you.